Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On a misty summer's morning in August 1912, the sun rose on a beach in the Thames estuary. On the foreshore were a collection of canvas tents, rustling in the gentle breeze, awaiting their occupants, which were set to arrive by boat. But apart from the sound of waves lapping at the shore and the distant sound of seagulls, the beach was gripped in an eerie silence, and not a soul was in sight. On the sand flats revealed by the receding tide were several bodies, all of whom had washed ashore. But who were these people, and where had they come from, and how did they end up scattered around the estuary? Today on Macabre London, we uncover the story of the Laysdown tragedy. And welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host of The Silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy back streets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. And today we're taking a trip along the River Thames towards Kent to learn about the heartbreaking story of the Laysdown tragedy. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London's past, and in fact, all over the world, then please don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. 
There's loads of bonus content over there, including an extra podcast every fortnight with my long-suffering other half called Having a Problem, which is lots of silly fun with a bit of history thrown in and lots of other fun spooky bonus bits and bobs too. So if you sign up to Patreon, you effectively get an episode from me every single week. It's all very reasonably priced and there's literally hours of bonus content over there. So why not take a look on patreon.com forward slash macabre London. I'd love to see you over there. In the 20th century, a craze swept the nation, particularly encapsulating the minds of young boys everywhere. In 1907, an experiment had been carried out on a tiny island a short distance off the coast of Dorset, the result of which would go on to change many children's childhoods and shape them into the adults they were yet to become. Invented by Robert Baden-Powell, a British army officer in the early 20th century, the movement which would go on to be called the Boy Scouts Association was instantly a huge success and took off like wildfire across the country. The origins of the Boy Scouts can be traced back to Baden-Powell's experiences as a military leader, particularly during the Second Boer War in South Africa between 1899 and 1902. Now, before I start extolling the virtues of Baden-Powell, I will just add a caveat in here that Baden-Powell has, much like many people from history, gone on to become a controversial figure, and like many other historical figures, is a big jumble of both good and bad. So I just wanted to say I'm not ignoring that side of things, but it's not really appropriate to bombard this story with his controversies, so I'm just going to park them for today and leave links in the sources for you to check out if you want to know more about all of that. Baden-Powell, who was already known for his skills in scouting and military reconnaissance, gained further recognition for his successful defence of the town of Mafeking during a legendary siege. During the Mafeking siege, Baden-Powell observed that young boys in the town were eager to assist in various tasks, such as carrying messages, running errands and providing support to the military forces, and this sparked something in his brain. He recognised the potential of these young boys to be resourceful, adaptable and disciplined, qualities that he believed could be harnessed for their personal development and something which would be highly beneficial to the children back home. At the turn of the century, the UK was emerging from the Industrial Revolution, something which had been a huge part of many children's lives. Many children were forced to work in factories and as working class kids, they didn't receive much of an education, if any at all. This meant that a lot of children were born into families with parents that had been stuck in factories in lieu of an education and who couldn't pass on much in the way of knowledge or teaching to their offspring. And so children were becoming vagrants on the streets in the slums which still plagued London and other parts of the country. After the siege in Mafeking, Baden-Powell returned to England and began working on a book based on his military experiences, focusing on scouting, tracking and outdoor skills. This book, titled Aids to Scouting, was published in 1899 and became a popular guidebook for youth interested in learning outdoor skills and woodcraft, but it only reached those that already knew how to read. If Baden-Powell wanted to reach the children that needed his teachings the most, he had to come up with a practical idea to engage them. The turning point came in 1907, when Baden-Powell held an experimental camp on Brownsea Island in Paul Harmer on the south coast of England. 
This camp brought together a mix of boys from various backgrounds, and Baden-Powell tested his ideas on training them in scouting and outdoor skills. The camp's success demonstrated that young boys could be moulded into responsible, capable and self-reliant individuals through a programme focused on character development, citizenship and outdoor activities. This showed that there was an alternative to standard education, which had passed many by, and that school wasn't the be-all and end-all when it came to giving children prospects for the future. In 1908, Baden-Powell published a new book titled Scouting for Boys, which was intended as a guide for youth interested in becoming scouts. The book outlined the core principles and activities that would later become the foundation of the Boy Scout movement. The book became immensely popular, not only in Britain, but it also took off around the world, and it was translated into multiple languages. The first official Boy Scout rally was held at Crystal Palace in London in 1909, and this event marked the birth of the Boy Scout movement. Baden-Powell's vision for scouting was to provide young boys with opportunities for character development, outdoor adventures and service to their communities. The movement quickly gained momentum, with boys forming scout patrols and troops in their communities. Before long, scout divisions were popping up everywhere, and in London and other industrial towns where there were plenty of children who needed a community youth group to be part of, took to it like ducks to water. The groups were often run by men who were seen as senior in their area, or in some cases, even moved into less desirable areas of these cities with the intention of providing a scout group for underprivileged children. And in one area of London, one man did just that. Sidney Marsh, who was a Dulwich College student who then went on to be a businessman in the city, had a love for maritime expeditions. He was a naval paymaster, which meant he was just in charge of making sure that the sailors got paid, so he didn't get to do much sailing, but he dabbled here and there and spent many weekends messing about in the water. By the time the scout movement was established, Sidney, a Christian man, knew he was to dedicate his life to working as somewhat of a missionary, and when he learned of the plans Baden-Powell had to expand the network of scouts across the world, he took this as a sign from God. He set up a scout group, the second Woolworth Scouts, and before long, he and a few other leaders had a loyal group of boys who attended their nightly meetings. The group provided valuable training and also respite from the streets of Woolworth in Southwark in the heart of the city, an area known for its many slums. Slums in the city by this point were slowly being abolished and demolished, but the echoes of their impact on young working class families were still being felt. Many people still had no other option but to live in multi-occupancy households. Many children still had jobs as the child employment law wasn't brought in for almost another 30 years and so life was hard if you were a kid during this period. The Woolworth Scout movement was praised for its service to the community and became a valuable part of helping many young boys in a run-down town have something to look forward to and to build strong connections within their community. With Sidney Marsh using his connection in the Navy, he managed to secure an old sailing boat and taught the boys how to use the small cutter so they would know how to sail. The Woolworth Scouts spent a lot of time zipping up and down the Thames, learning the basics of sailing, and within a year or so, they performed their skills at a Sea Scouts rally in Earl's Court. 
The impressive display showed that these boys and Sydney were skilled sailors, and the boat became an important part of the scout troops' activities. A staple of scouting was summer camps, excursions where parents would pack up their young children and send them off, usually not too far from home, to have days in the wilderness, cooking over campfires, singing songs and carrying out outdoor crafts. With the boys' skills and the boat secured, one summer they took a trip along the Thames, camped overnight and returned a few days later. The short campout became a major talking point for many of the boys, as it was such a fun thing for them to be a part of, and a major achievement to say they'd sailed along the Thames and back. This meant that by the following summer, many more boys wanted to go along to the summer camp, and so plans were made to set up a trip down the Thames towards Kent and to stay in Laysdown on the Isle of Sheppey. This ambitious task would be testing for the boys, but Sydney knew his troop and he assembled the 24 boys and five adults to assist with the trip. The thought being that five adults could easily take the ship there and back on their own if they needed to. On the morning of the 2nd of August 1912, the troop assembled at Waterloo Bridge, loaded everything on board and set sail for sunny Sheppey. The trip was plotted so that the 66-mile journey would be in two legs. On the first leg of the journey, they stopped at around 9pm in Erith and slept inside the small sailboat together underneath blankets. The weather was mild and with all 24 boys huddled together, the boat wouldn't have been comfortable, but it would have afforded a few hours of rest they needed before heading out as soon as the sun rose the following morning. At the crack of dawn, the boys, Sydney and the rest of the troop set off onto the calm waters of the Thames once more, heading towards their final destination, which was eerie foreshadowing of what was to come. They were just two miles from shore when tragedy struck and an event would occur which would change the lives of everyone on board for all eternity. But here seems like a good time to take a break from our story to hear from our wonderful sponsor of today's episode, Alternate Universe. I would never recommend something I didn't think was good myself, so you can be assured that Alternate Universe is going to tickle your fancy. This ad goes out to all the spooky crafters and the cosy macabre London listeners that like to crochet or knit whilst they enjoy these episodes, or who have maybe been thinking about taking up a new hobby for the winter months. Alternate Universe is an ethical yarn shop designed to bring a bit of whimsy to your woolly shopping adventures. Alternit, K-N-I-T. Get it? Because it's a knitting shop. Okay, we love a pun. Particularly a crafty one. (laughs) Anyway, if you like the idea of stepping into an alternate universe where yarns are guarded by a crocheted dragon, then this is the place for you. In their real-life shop just outside of Bristol, you'll find an inclusive space full of colour and texture that gives Victorian shop meets cottage core living room vibes, with an inclusive and cosy welcoming environment for everyone. Everything in the shop fits under the umbrella of natural, recycled, local or ethically produced, so you can pick up supplies for your next project or a fun gift without having to worry about its impact on the world or the people and creatures that live on it. They research suppliers and ask the hard questions about production so you don't have to. And they love supporting local makers and other awesome small businesses. So you're always going to find something new to treasure. If you're not a crafter yourself, you can check out their new selection of made-to-order gifts that are a little macabre, like a knitted arsenic bottle catnip toy, which sounds so fun. And I know Boots would absolutely love one of those. 
They're an LGBTQ plus safe space and constantly trying to hold space for minorities. The owner Kim is a bi and disabled activist, even describes herself as a granny punk. So you know you're in good hands there and that you'll be welcome to learn how to craft or to further your crafting adventures, regardless of who you are, which is how it should be. And if you can't make it out to their physical shop to squish all the fibres and have a cup of tea in person, yes, they do drinks too. I have it on good authority that they do a very nice pumpkin coffee. Then you've got alternateuniverse.co.uk to browse and their social media to get inspired and start your new project or maybe finish one you've been working on. They ship pretty much anywhere in the world and all their packages are wrapped up in brown paper and string like the old general stores used to do to give it that cottage core gift to yourself vibes. Kim even has a YouTube channel where you can see behind the scenes vlogs and podcast episodes about what she's making and get inspired yourself. Now here's the best bit. They're giving you, the lovely audience of Macabre London, an exceptionally generous discount. You can get 20% off your first order in store or online by using the code MACABRE20. Head on over to alternateuniverse.co.uk to join in this wonderful community and snag supplies for your next woolly project. That's alternateuniverse.co.uk, alterknituniverse.co.uk, and use the code M-A-C-A-B-R-E-20 to get your discount, or at AUShopUK on Instagram. Happy crafting, thanks for listening, and let's get back to the episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. At around noon on the 3rd of August, the 2nd Woolworth Scout Troop were about two miles from shore, making their way towards Laysdown on the Isle of Sheppey in the Thames estuary. The 24 boys on board, who ranged from 10 to 15 years old, were all looking forward to getting off the little cutter and getting to finally rest after a long journey along the Thames. The shore was in sight and the boys were in good spirits when suddenly tragedy struck. A freak swell caused the boat to lurch, and a subsequent wave toppled the boat, capsizing it, spewing the contents of the boat and all its passengers into the rough waters. The swell had come from nowhere and overpowered the small vessel, and the boys who were too far to swim to shore were all left bobbing in the rough waters. Now something to note is that in this period of history, swimming was not something that was common. Swimming baths were a relatively new invention and reserved for the upper classes. But luckily, as part of their sailing practice, the boys had been taught how to swim and tread water for an exact occasion like this. 
the scouts' motto of be prepared was paying off. However, despite their training, the water was too choppy for even the most hardened of swimmers, and so it was inevitable the boys were to find themselves in difficulty quickly. The first person to raise the alarm was a woman called Mrs Brummel. She was on holiday with her family when she saw the boat capsize. She immediately sent her family to get help from the Coast Guard. As they arrived, they had to wait for the lifeboat to be launched. Mrs Brummel could see the boys were flailing and not coping with the roughness of the waves, so she called on the rescuers to begin swimming, but they said the sea was too powerful for that to be a good idea, and so she began wading out despite pleas for her not to. As she began to swim, she realised they were right, and so she retreated back to the shore and looked on in horror at the situation occurring in front of her eyes. A line was deployed into the water with which any boys drifting towards the shore could grab onto to stop them drifting away. Mrs Ballam waded out as far as she could and held on to the line, rescuing any boys which made it within her grasp, carrying them onto the beach. Between her rescue efforts and delivering CPR on the beach to many of the unresponsive boys, she managed to save several of their lives. One of the boys, named Martin Schofield, was rescued from the water at the time of the accident and fished out of the rough seas with a boat hook. He'd ingested enough water that he was unresponsive, and those that rescued him worked tirelessly for two long hours on CPR, refusing to give up on him. It worked, and the boy survived. However, he was badly bruised by the artificial respiration, and due to the repeated friction, his arms had been rubbed raw needing to be wrapped in bandages until healed a few weeks later. Despite his ordeal, he was weak but cheery the following day, happy to still be alive and at that point he'd not been told the truth about many of his friends' fates. Having survived, Martin was able to give his first-hand account of what had really happened to the little vessel. He said that the journey had been long, but the boys were still in good spirits and glad to be in sight of their campsite for the next few days. However, suddenly there was a change. The wind picked up and caused the water to become incredibly choppy. Then before he knew it, he and the rest of the occupants of the boat were in the water. He tried to hold on to the boat, instructions which were bellowed by Scoutmaster Marsh, but as the noise of the lashing waves was so loud, many of the boys didn't hear the command. Those that did hold on struggled to do so as the water was so boisterous, and Martin said he remembered feeling sleepy, and then he let go. The next thing he knew, he was waking up in a room with sore arms, feeling weak, but thankful to be alive. The scoutmaster, Sidney Marsh, was indefatigable in his attempts to save the boys. He tried to keep as many as he could attached to the upturned boat, but as he tried himself to stay alive, he saw the boys, one by one, slip away into the choppy waters. Marsh managed to stay holding onto the boat, and when the Coast Guard arrived, he refused to get into the vessel, as he didn't want to leave the boys behind, despite many of them having sunk. Fourteen boys managed to keep themselves afloat for long enough to be rescued or drifted near enough to the shore to be plucked out of the water by Mrs Brummel and her onshore rescue team. 
In the end, the Coast Guard had to grab Sidney and drag him through the water as he was resolute in his decision to not leave the capsized vessel. When they did manage to eventually get him into the boat, he almost fought his rescuers as he was desperate to try and battle the futility of the reality before him, that many of the boys were dead and there was nothing he could do to save them. A few times he dived out of the rescue boat at any debris floating in the water, but alas, these were all inadvertent decoys and the boys were long gone. Once back on land, Sydney sat quietly wrapped in a blanket on the floor, clearly suffering from shock. The next day he'd managed to rally and to help in the sad recovery efforts of the boys. Sydney lived in Woolworth in South London and had done so for five years in order to be, in his words, right amongst his boys. Sydney had dedicated his life to being a scoutmaster. He was in his 30s, had never married, and spent his whole time working with these working-class boys to get them off the streets, giving them skills and attributes they could use in later life to help them prosper. He was also an advocate for getting the kids outside and into nature, which many of them hadn't had a chance to do for their whole lives. Unlike today, where scouts only meet once a week, these scout groups happened every night of the week and provided a respite for both kids and parents alike. The day after the accident, the surviving boys banded together, sleeping beside one another in camp beds and making the best of a bad situation. Some of the younger children were kept in the dark about the true horrors of what had really happened in order to protect them. One little boy, Ted Beckham, a boy of barely 11, asked after his brother of a coast guard who accidentally mentioned the boy's name in front of him, forgetting the little boy was in the room. He then got up and promptly left before finishing his sentence. Sadly, the boy's brother William had perished in the accident. He was survived by Ted and their brother, John. The day after the accident, the seven members of the troop that were missing washed up on the sand flats. Chief Petty Officer Streeter, the head coast guard, and four of his men were tasked with retrieving the bodies from the sand flats. Mr Streeter said to a journalist after the retrieval of the bodies, I found five of the boys lying face downwards on the sands. Two were on their backs. All of them looked very peaceful, as though their death had been easy and painless. We carried them in on our shoulders, poor little fellows. They were so light. I hope never to go through such a time again. The names of the dead boys now lying in the Coast Guard's watch house were Noel Filmer, 14, of Blevedon Road, Thompson Filmer, 12, of Blevedon Road, Albert Dack, 12, of Brandon Row. Harry Gwynne, 13, of Brandon Street. Edward Smith, 11, of Brandon Street. William Beckham, 12, of Eltham Street. James Skipsey, 12, of Blackwood Street. An extra casualty was Frank Masters, one of the rescuers, who had drowned whilst trying to save the boys. One of the boys remained missing, 11-year-old Percy Huxford, and his body was still unaccounted for. By this time, the horrible news had been relayed back to the young boys, and despite their young ages, they were instrumental in helping return their fallen comrades back to London. 
An investigation after the tragedy showed that the boat was in shipshape condition and there was no other reason the boat ended up the way it did apart from the freak weather conditions. This, of course, didn't do anything to console scout leader Marsh, who was beside himself and blamed himself for the accident entirely. After the tragedy had occurred, the nation came together in an outpouring of grief for the young boys that had lost their lives. To allay any fears Sidney may have had about his guilt over the event, an official statement was released by the church. The Reverend of St Paul's and Covent Gardens sung the praises of Sidney, saying, In town he is worshipped by the boys. Woolworth swears by him and with good reason. His father, mother and everything else to them. He looks after their character, their training, in fact their whole lives. He is making real, clean, self-respecting men out of them. Many instances of Mr Marsh's devotion to the boys are related by their relatives. In one instance, it is said, the scoutmaster gave some of his own blood for a transfusion to a young boy who was an invalid. Back in Kent, the boys' bodies were still to be brought back to London. As the story was everywhere by then, a 38-year-old MP named Winston Churchill used his power as the First Lord of the Admiralty to have a warship dispatched to the Thames estuary to bring the boys' bodies back to London. Their coffins were dressed in Union Jacks, carried by the boys, and loaded onto the ship and sailed back to Rotherhithe to be unloaded to the Church of St John's in Woolworth, where their scout meetings were often held, and what was the local church for many of the boys. It was here the coffins stayed for a number of days, as upward of 100,000 people came to see the boys lying in state, an honour usually reserved for royals and occasionally former prime ministers only. The tragedy engulfed the nation in grief and the funeral which was held on the 10th of August was a huge affair. Baden-Powell himself sent a floral tribute for each of the lives lost with his condolences in the form of a card. Scouts from across the whole of London attended along with a representation from Amsterdam which was to stand as an offering of grief and sympathy from the whole of the European Scouting Association. The church was fit to bursting with mourners, including the boys that had survived the fateful morning, and the scoutmaster himself, Sidney Marsh. The procession from St John's to Nunhead Cemetery, where the boys were to be buried, was just over three miles long. It took over an hour for the procession to make its way there, and the streets were lined the whole way, eight people deep, as everyone came out in their millions to say goodbye to the lost boys. Three days after the boys had been buried, the Coast Guard in Margate raised the alarm when a body washed up on the shore there. It was identified as the lost Percy Huxford. He was returned to London and interred with his fellow scouts at Nunhead Cemetery a few days later on the 15th of August. A bronze life-size scout with bowed head was designed by Sir Giles Gilbert Scott, who went on to create the iconic red phone box and was erected in 1914 to decorate the grave as a solemn guard to stand over the boys for posterity. When Nunhead Cemetery went into rack and ruin following the decline of the London Cemetery Company in the late 60s, which owned the former site and also Highgate Cemetery, it was stolen in 1969 and more than likely melted down for scrap. In 1992, a replacement memorial was erected, but sadly the Bronze Scout wasn't recreated. Instead, there is now a book in its place, which I assume is to commemorate the Scouting for Boys book. There is also a memorial that lays down itself to mark the tragedy, helping to make sure the legacy of the boys and the scout troop are remembered. 
Now, one of the surnames in this story may have stuck out to you, as you all have heard it many times before, and that was of the little boy, Ted Beckham. The Beckhams mentioned in this story are indeed related to David Beckham. William and John were his great uncles, and Ted was his great grandfather. So that's an interesting link to the modern day. And as David himself knows the story, it's good to know it won't be forgotten with such a prominent celebrity to help keep it alive. The Lays Down tragedy of 1912 stands as a poignant chapter of scouting history, which will never be forgotten. The bravery of many people on that fateful day saved the lives of the majority of the scout troop. But sadly, there was no hope for some of them succumbing to the power of nature at its fullest force. These young boys, which had no prospects and were taken under the wing of several adults who just wanted to improve their lives, ended up living with the guilt of an accident which was beyond their control for the rest of their lives. However, no one blamed them. The incident was tragic and unpredictable, and with the skills they'd learned, some of the boys managed to save themselves, showcasing both the resilience of young scouts and the profound impact of scouting principles on their lives. As these brave boys embarked on their ill-fated adventure, their dedication to the scout law, values such as loyalty, bravery and helpfulness became evident in their final moments. Scoutmaster Sidney Marsh, an embodiment of scouting's guiding ethos, tirelessly fought to save his charges, demonstrating the unwavering commitment that scouting instills in its leaders. The tragedy not only tested the endurance of these young scouts, but also highlighted the enduring influence of scouting for decades after, shaping them into individuals who displayed courage, camaraderie and selflessness, even in the face of adversity. The Lays Down tragedy left a mark on the legacy of scouting, but it showed that with an unwavering bond, the eight boys that died that day may have left their physical selves behind, but their spirit would live on in the minds of their friends, family and leaders forever. Thanks for joining me for this episode. That was a very sad one. I'm not going to lie or try and pad it out here. It's a tragic story, but I'm glad I could share it with you to keep the tale alive. If you like hearing these forgotten tales and want to hear more of them, then you can support me in a variety of ways, including signing up to my Patreon, using the thanks button on YouTube, heading to my coffee page, or checking out my Amazon wishlist or buying some merch. I also have my PayPal link for one-off donations too. If you head to the support me section in the show notes on the podcast or just click on the video info on YouTube, then everything you need is there. And it's not all about money. Sharing the show around on social media, telling your friends, your hairdresser or the chimney sweep about the show all really helps me out. Leaving a review also helps. A comment, a thumbs up, follow, subscribe, all of that fun stuff, which is all 100% free, is more helpful than you know and helps the show to grow our lovable gang of ghouls and will allow me in the long run to bring you more of the haunted history we both love. A big thanks to my amazing top-tier legendary executive Patreon producers Amy, Christina, Christoph, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Meg, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, Terry, V, and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. 
If you'd also like your name read out by me at the end of every episode or your name in the show notes, then make sure you check out my Patreon where you can also get exclusive episodes like the show I have with my long-suffering other half called Having a Problem, where we have a general chit-chat about a topic once a fortnight and try to solve the overarching problem we both have with it. The last episode we did about sharks was probably one of my favourite podcast episodes I've ever made, and the next one about Greek gods is very fun too. It starts for as little as just £3 a month for two extra episodes a month, which is a bargain in my opinion, as they're usually over an hour long each time. So I hope to see you over there at patreon.com forward slash London so I can personally welcome you to the Ghoul Gang. And lastly, thanks very much to Alternate Universe. Make sure you go check them out for all your crafty needs and don't forget your discount code macabre20 for your 20% off. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce. Remember to stay spooky and I'll see you ghouls next time. I've got my nails back now so I can make the noise. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.